The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Good day, listeners. Today is June 30th, 2023, and this is Tejish Shaw, a member of the Public Affairs Committee of the North American Spine Society and a current PMNR resident at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I would like to welcome everyone to the next installment of our podcast series showcasing interesting articles from the upcoming Spineline NAS membership magazine. Today, we will be discussing the article by Christina Barber, Lindsay Burke, and Dr. Jason Friedrich from the University of Colorado School of Medicine in Aurora, Colorado. We'll be discussing the article written by them titled, Update on Non-Surgical Management of Adult Degenerative Scoliosis. You will today have the pleasure of hearing directly from Dr. Jason Friedrich. Our hope and goal is that this discussion will further expound on their compelling article in our upcoming journal. And so first, I would just like to welcome Dr. Friedrich, and thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Friedrich. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. Um, and so when we start off, uh, just for all of our, our listeners from the world of neurosurgery, physiatry, orthopedics, et cetera, can you define for us what is adult degenerative scoliosis? Yeah, of course. I think it's always good to start with definitions, um, and especially for complex topics such as this. Um, obviously, there are many different categories and types of spinal deformities, and this paper really only focuses on adult primary degenerative scoliosis. Uh, that's also known as de novo scoliosis. So what is not covered in this article would be adolescent idiopathic scoliosis or secondary adult scoliosis, which may develop as a result of neurodegenerative or other bone diseases. Uh, we're also not talking about post-operative uh, sagittal or junctional deformities. Um, so our topic today is really adult degenerative scoliosis. Uh, and that's uh, defined as scoliosis that develops typically late in adulthood as a result of uh, age-related degenerative changes or spondylosis. So while degenerative scoliosis can occur anywhere in the spine, um, it's most commonly seen in the lumbar spine and in patients uh, over 65 years of age. Great. Thank you so much for a very comprehensive explanation. Really appreciate it. Um, and now tell us what is sort of some of the main problems we have with our current management model. And, and maybe you can maybe, you know, define for us the different types as defined in your article. Sure. Yeah, I think there's there's a number of different issues to talk or talk about uh, with respect to this topic. Um, I'll just say I think it's it's an important topic and one that we chose to to write about in part because it's clear that the prevalence of of adult degenerative scoliosis seems to be on the rise as populations age, and it certainly can have a significant impact on quality of life. So there are a number of problems with our current management strategies for this population. And I'll try to be brief here, but could probably spend a full hour on this uh, question alone. Um, so the adult de novo scoliosis population is, is actually quite varied. Um, and though it oversimplifies things, I'll try to put them into just three buckets of, of patients. So bucket number one would be patients with severe deformities. Um, 
and associated uh, severe disability who are otherwise reasonably healthy. And for these folks, deformity correction surgery probably remains the best option is actually a reasonable option despite the known risks. And then you have bucket number two, which includes patients with severe deformities, disability, and who are also significantly frail or have many medical comorbidities. Uh, in these cases, surgery may simply uh, just be too high risk uh, to pursue. And we unfortunately lack any good non-operative treatment pathways for them. And so that's certainly a problem because treatment choice, choices really may amount um, to choosing between what may be a, a bad choice and a worse choice. Um, and then finally, the third bucket includes patients with either less severe deformities, um, less severe disability, or those with really no interest in surgery at all. Uh, and this is more or less my patient population. And um, the problem is with this group is we just don't have very well-defined treatments for them. So in many cases, you'll see the same treatments applied to this group that are given to those with run-of-the-mill mechanical low back pain. Um, and from a surgeon's perspective, then this makes it pretty hard to establish who has really failed appropriate non-operative care um, if we haven't really even just defined what the best practice is for this group. That's very interesting what you said. Um, certainly try to meet where the patients are. And I think as we move in this world, as I venture into the, the world of spine or pain, the, the lines are definitely blurring, you know, between surgery and interventional spine. I mean, I consider interventional spine surgeons, right, to an extent. Um, so, yeah, very interesting. Thank you for covering all of that. Um, even though this wasn't necessarily covered, you know, article, I, I kind of just want you to define for us, because a lot of people are familiar with scoliosis in the, in the juvenile population. Um, but this article really focused on more of the adult um, scoliosis uh, genre. Um, can you just maybe go over some of the key differences for, for our listeners? Yeah, of course. Um, and I think it's actually important to make this distinction, too, when we're talking about natural history and treatment anyway. Um, so juvenile onset scoliosis is the type that develops before skeletal maturity. Um, adolescent idiopathic scoliosis would be the most common type and often becomes most pronounced during years of rapid growth. Uh, these patients typically present not so much with pain, but rather with uh, change in their um, spinal appearance. Um, they'll commonly report asymmetries or a thoracic rib hump. Um, in this group, large thoracolumbar curves are common. Uh, and distinguishing um, from that group, the patients with adult degenerative scoliosis frequently present to you with a pain complaint. Um, they tend to have a predominance of lumbar curves. Um, and then adults, um, who have a history of, of juvenile onset scoliosis certainly can experience secondary degeneration. And that's not the primary group that we're talking about in today's paper. Um, but in my experience, that group with secondary degeneration overall tend to have less stenosis related symptoms compared to adults with primary degenerative scoliosis. So hopefully that helps distinguish it a little bit. Yeah, no, it definitely does. Um, and, and if I have it correctly, I believe that it was mentioned in the article that patients that have the adult scoliosis type usually have an increased risk of progression. Um, is there anything um, within the pathology of each type that, that may explain why? Yeah, that's a hard question. I have no real definitive explanation for this other than that these are two completely different entities, honestly. Um, they're, they're different pathophysiology. And so... 
you have different sites of compensation and degeneration um, with both, and that may play a role. And so the adult patient who has juvenile onset scoliosis um, has been compensating their entire life, uh, whereas the patient with primary degenerative scoliosis presents after they've already, in a sense, lost the battle uh, with aging and gravity, um, so to speak. And so perhaps at this point, um, these folks tend to have less ability to compensate in, in any real productive ways. So I think the key point is, is mainly when you're thinking about scoliosis is, is, is just that to make the distinction between these entities and, and recognize that it's, it's potentially going to be a different natural history. Um, and you can't necessarily apply treatments that have perhaps worked for the adolescent scoliosis population to the, to the adult group. Right. Okay. Thank you so much for that. And I, I, that's definitely what I thought, you know, when you are born with it or you would develop in the juvenile population, you have more time to kind of compensate for it um, as opposed to some kind of an insult that occurs in the, the adult life. So thank you for expanding on that. And yeah, it is quite interesting. Hopefully we get more answers uh, as, as the years you know follow. Uh, and, and then just uh, for a, a brief answer, if you can just kind of explain to our listeners what the Cobb angle is, because I know we'll probably make reference to that multiple times in this interview. Sure. Yeah. So I think um, it's important to understand that now more than ever, there seems to be an ever increasing way of measuring and describing spine deformities. Um, and so to try to keep things simple, um, especially for um, non-surgeons like myself and you, um, I'd really look towards understanding this um, in that there's uh, both global and regional measurements. And within these global and regional measurements, there's both coronal and sagittal plane measurements. And so the most well-known measurement is the Cobb angle, which is a regional coronal plane uh, measurement of curve magnitude. And so the Cobb angle alone, it can certainly be helpful for describing curve severity um, and diagnosing scoliosis. So we don't tend to call it scoliosis until they at least have a Cobb angle of 10 degrees. And then most people will describe mild curves as 10 to 25 degrees, uh, moderate as 25 to 45 degrees, and severe would be greater than 45, uh, plus or minus um, five degrees, depending on who you ask. And so it's important to note that um, for adult degenerative scoliosis, the Cobb angle is actually not the most helpful measurement for predicting um, disability or curve progression, but it is an important part of just making the diagnosis of, of scoliosis in the first place. And it's actually a variety of sagittal plane measurements that seem to be better predictors of quality of life and curve progression. And that's um, talked about a lot in the paper. Um, and if you're looking for a place to start, I would look towards the Scoliosis Research Society Schwab classifications. And that includes several sagittal measurements with some predictive value, um, both uh, independently and in combination with each other. And these include things like a spine pelvic mismatch, um, or a sagittal ver vertical axis, uh, which is a you know measure of, of a global measure of sagittal imbalance. Uh, but these sagittal measures are actually um, perhaps more important when thinking about who you know should go towards uh, surgery earlier and who should stick in the non-operative side. Quite interesting, um, and yeah, definitely something good for our listeners to check out, especially. Uh, new residents, uh, medical students interested in the spine field, uh, a good way to probably impress your attending in clinic as well. Um, and now finally, you know, you alluded to this in the first uh, question that I asked you, but if you want to just maybe expand 
on some of the non-operative, which is, as you mentioned, sort of in your field, some of the non-operative uh, management options for uh, ADS and um, maybe just take some time to review some of the evidence that we have thus far for each modality. Sure. Yeah. So obviously a lot, there's a lot to review here. Um, and I, I wish I could say that this was going to be like a, a high level of evidence discussion, but I think um, that's just, that's just not the case yet. We can still, you know, understand kind of what would be practical and reasonable um, for this population. So um yeah, like I said, it stated earlier, there's not great evidence to guide us um, as to the best non-operative treatment um, for a given patient with adult degenerative scoliosis. Um, as is often the case in, in our specialty, um, shared decision-making is probably the best. Um, and so this starts with really understanding the patient's goals of care, which may range from just wanting an explanation or a diagnosis or information to seeking pain relief, um, for either axial pain or radicular pain, um, or perhaps they are seeking just better function, um, ability to move better. And so some patients um, even just want um, your help in, 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 in getting a better night's sleep. And so um, having a discussion with them at the outset of, of what they're really after is gonna really guide what we do on the non-operative side. So with all that in mind, um, multimodal treatment probably makes the most sense. And so this can include some combination of oral medications, physical therapy, you know, with the possibility of some um, bracing, um, psychological treatments for pain coping, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, spine injections, um, and in some cases, more advanced um, pain procedures, such as spinal cord stimulation. And so I'll start first just uh, working through these um, briefly on, on what we have with respect to, to both evidence, but then also just kind of a practical approach. So oral medications have not really been specifically studied for this population, um, and clinical judgment is, is definitely what we rely on most of the time. I find myself choosing medications based on the types and timing of symptoms, and we'll use NSAIDs for uh, just pain exacerbations, um, gabapentin or pregabalin for consistent neuropathic symptoms, especially if there's a sleep disturbance component. And then duloxetine for uh, chronic daily symptoms, especially if there's some mood disturbance. But realistically, I'm, I'm really only expecting maybe 10 to 20% improvement um, with oral medications for pain. Um, and sometimes I can achieve better results if, again, if the primary outcome we're seeking is, is just a better night's rest. Physical therapy um, is certainly a major part of our specialty, um, and, and it can be helpful for improving pain and meeting functional goals, um, including for this patient population. However, when you look to the evidence, um, most of the studies are for adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. Um, and I think because there's lack of clear evidence-based guidance, guidance, the study that was described in the paper indicated that only about half of spine surgeons regularly refer their adult degenerative scoliosis patients to physical therapy. So I think taking from what we know about physical therapy management for general low back pain and for adolescent scoliosis, it certainly is reasonable to trial um, physical therapy um, initially. And in doing so, emphasize active over passive treatments, emphasize exercises that support postural control or spinal stability, um, or exercises that are really targeting specifically the patient's um, functional goals. And so while it's hard to find the ideal state, um, I think what is perhaps um, gives me some hope for the future 
is it seems like an increasing number of physical therapists are combining some elements of cognitive behavioral therapy with physical therapy. Um, and that's actually been shown to produce greater improvements in disability, pain catastrophizing pain scores compared to physical therapy alone. Um, and so uh, I like I like this um, idea um, and I like the the fact that it has been looked at specifically in the adult degenerative um, scoliosis population with some lasting effects up through one year. And if you look at cognitive behavioral therapy alone as a treatment option, the outcomes aren't as clear. And so in the chronic back pain population, CBT can certainly reduce pain catastrophizing, um, but may not change pain scores or physical function. And it's it's not really studied in isolation for, for, the, for the group we're talking about today. Um, and so lots of patients will come in and ask about bracing. Um, probably because they've heard of braces being used for scoliosis in the adolescent population. Unfortunately, bracing um, for the adult to gen um, scoliosis populations is not well supported by research. So if you do choose to use it for somebody over 65 with degenerative scoliosis, uh, you may be able to find a brace that offers some postural support um, and temporary relief of pain during certain activities. Um, but I'm certainly not recommending a brace in most cases, and, in, and especially if the patient is expecting the brace to improve their curve or reduce progression, because that's just not well proven. Um, it's also not really clear from the research that using a rigid brace, you know, for 20 hours a day, you know, for an extended period of time really alters the natural history um, here and is probably going to be met with, you know, pretty poor compliance, um, the possibility of muscular deconditioning. Um, and most likely a, a non-compliant or an un, unhappy patient. So moving on, I um, want to just touch on the intervention. So injections are a mixed bag for this patient population. Um, there is probably a role for injections for some of these folks. And so the best evidence comes from studies looking at transframinal epidural steroid injections for patients with radicular pain, and it's often targeting a level in the concavity of their curve related to foraminal stenosis or lateral recess stenosis. While this is really only level three evidence, um, you can at least describe to patients that about half or more than half will obtain better than 50% pain relief for at least a month with some diminishing percentage of responders um, through the first year. Those patients who do respond at a month do uh, tend to be less likely to, to be seeking surgery at two years. So there may be a little bit of a surgery sparing effect for the first two years. It's harder to talk about other injections such as facet injections or medial branch radiofrequency ablation in this group because there's simply not research to report on. Um, similarly, we'll see patients um, with scoliosis that have pelvic obliquity related to their curve. Um, they may develop secondary conditions such as SI joint pain or greater trochanteric pain syndrome. Um, and we just don't have outcomes research for um, you know, targeted injections to the SI joint piriformis um, or myofascial or trochanteric versus injections in this population, but we do still tend to use it for, for symptomatic management. And then lastly, um, for spinal cord stimulation, this is a topic I don't know as much about personally, um, but looking at the research, you know, evidence looks limited mainly to case reports and case series. Um, it's reported that some patients can see improvement in back pain or leg pain up to two years after a successful stim um, placement um, with some diminishing returns with respect to their level of disability starting after about a year after implantation. 
And then based on the case series that are out there, um, I think it still is hard to determine really the best subgroup um, to be applying this treatment to. So um, if I see somebody who has really significant deformity, significant disability, I'd probably first have them evaluated by a deformity surgeon. And then for the mild or moderate cases, I'd probably be trying less invasive options over the course of a year or two before looking at a, a spinal cord implant. Um, so there's still maybe a small number that fall kind of in between these two groups um, where a spinal cord stem trial does make some sense. So I know that was long-winded, but um, hopefully comprehensive enough to get people started. That was amazing. Thank you so much for going through all of that. Um, I think there was definitely a few things I kind of just wanted to comment on. First is, you know, understanding what the patient's goals of care are uh, with so many different options. I think it's important, especially for interventionalists to understand that sometimes intervention is not the way to go. Um, so I'm really glad you expanded on the oral medication side of it. Um, I like spinal cord stem a lot. Um, I know the, the best evidence right now is still like persistent spinal pain syndrome or um, CRPS. Um, I didn't really read much on uh, scoliosis when I was like doing my grand rounds, but it'd be interesting to see how that how that fares, uh, the world of neuromodulation. Um, and also, you know, CBT, um, how the therapists do that in addition to physical therapy. I think pain catastrophizing is unfortunately a big part of uh, interventional pain management uh, and obviously in the field of, you know, spine management as well. So to be able to get a better, you know, idea of that as we go forward is going to be, you know, really interesting. And, and I'm glad that they're incorporating that. I think they've obviously seen some positive results. Mm -hmm. So that's fantastic. Thank you so much for, you know, going through that. I, I really appreciate it. Um, for, for the next question, you know, um, a lot of people have different um, mindset when it comes to surgery. Um, I know a lot of people when I'm, we're both physiatrists as we discussed before. And so I don't know if you remember your time on the acute rehab service, but I have many patients that don't know what surgery they just had a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and I, I don't know if it was the, it's, it's, you know, it's not the surgeon's fault necessarily, but sometimes patients will just agree to whatever you say, right. As a, as a person with a white coat on. And so sometimes that's never, never a good thing to hear. Right. Uh, when they, when they say that, um, and then in the, in the field of, um, ADS that we're discussing, uh, it feels like, um, when it comes to the operative treatment, even though there has been limited positive evidence, um, there is some hesitancy about kind of, you know, using it, using it more as a standard, you know, treatment option. Um, I think it's great to have surgery as a last, you know, last minute resort as it is for many conditions, just because of obviously how, you know, invasive it can be, but can you comment on some of the hesitancy behind it? And um, if you see that changing in the near future? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I definitely want to be clear. I mean, when you have a patient, with you know severe disability really terrible quality of life and a severe deformity i mean actually you know surgery has a pretty good track record if um you can mitigate you know some of the medical comorbidities um that 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 lead to kind of higher complication rates i mean we'll talk a little more about um complications in a moment but there there are a lot of issues around deformity correction surgeries um to think about even for the non-surgeon like us so uh you know, I'm not going to try to speak about the nuances of, of planning a deformity correction surgery um, or the various surgical techniques that may increase or decrease complexity and risk. Um, but there's a lot there to talk about, too. Um, it just wouldn't be me who would be uh, the right person to talk to about it. Um, I'm going to speak more generally about 
shared decision-making and why many patients and physicians, I think, should think twice about a deformity correction surgery, despite the potential positive outcomes as outlined in the research, especially um, for those, um, uh, you know, those patients that maybe are, don't have as uh, severe deformities or, or sagittal plane imbalances or, um, you know, potentially have a, a livable level of disability. So unfortunately with um, surgery, with a deformity correction surgery, somewhere between 40 to 70% of patients um, will experience a complication um, and some 30% will need another operation. And so managing complications and reoperations over the first year or two can make for an extremely long recovery that even very well-informed patients are just simply not prepared for. Um, and so even if you get through the first year, late complications present, such as increasing pain, implant failure, um, junctional kyphosis, and potentially the need for more surgery. So I think uh, in most cases, taking some extra time, even as long as a year or two, to optimize physical and psychological health of the patient uh, and um, try to develop really a, a, a multidisciplinary decision-making team around the patient really does make sense for such a complex problem. I mean, similar to what you would see, um, you know, for a, you know, a transplant service. Um, and especially when there's, you know, not evidence of, of, you know, progressive neurologic injury at play. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting and uh, we'll see how it goes. And, and, you know, like you said, there are some cases where Sometimes surgery is maybe the only option, you know, left on the table. Um, your article also touched on a lot of, you know, indicators um, that people should take into consideration uh, before they provide treatment options. Um, I know as, as an interventionalist, um, as a future interventionalist myself, hopefully, um, we always think about like complication rate, um, readmission to the hospital rate. These are things that are important. You know, obviously we want to limit them as much as possible. And a big part of that, you know, ties into our, um, you know, our, clinical decision-making compatibility to, to make sure that we don't take patients that are not appropriate for uh, surgeries or any interventions, because it can obviously, you know, lead to complications and we don't want that. Um, but I want you to maybe expand uh, specifically on, on issues such as frailty, age, comorbidities, pain level, and even gender, how they play and how a patient is being treated with uh, ADS. Yeah, certainly. I'll do my best. And so, um, I guess maybe the easiest is just starting with age. I mean, on, on average, patients are around 70 years old when they seek specialty care for, uh, you know, adult spine deformities. And, um, and so already you're going to be accumulating a, a, a patient base that's, you know, um, getting up there in years and, and, and accumulating uh, medical comorbidities. Um, women, and especially women with sarcopenia, tend to be at increased risk. Um, and probably the typical presentation is somebody comes into their primary care doctor with back pain, you know, or radicular pain, and they start the usual care for back pain, eventually get an x-ray and then scoliosis is seen and then, and then they're referred over. Um, and so the, the types of patients that we may see might range from folks that have no disability at all um, to those that have very severe disability. Um, and so uh, you know, the, the, the level of disability really has to factor into to decision-making for sure. And those patients with more severe deformities or disability, then frailty and medical comorbidities become, you know, of even more significant importance because now you're starting to think about what would surgery really look like in these cases. So frailty is a hot topic. Um, 
is in medicine overall, um, especially in surgical specialties and especially in spine surgery. And so I think the best way to understand frailty is as is is as a surrogate for physiologic age um, as opposed to chronological age um, as a non-operative specialist. <clears throat> excuse me. I find frailty both intriguing and pretty frustrating. Um, it's intriguing because it's genuinely important to surgical outcomes, um, yet it's hard to say what the best way is to measure it. Um, there's um, measures based on ICD-10 codes, uh, measures based on comorbidities. Others utilize more of a functional capacity evaluation or walking speed. Uh, others require a lengthy patient interview. Some can be done in three minutes. Some can take like a two-hour interview and, you know, um, patient survey. Um, so it's not yet clear if um, anything that I do on the non-operative side really moves the needle on a patient's frailty score or frailty index either. And so I, that's somewhat frustrating based on the, the currently available research. Um, I know that there's likely to be more discussion on this in the coming years, and I'd certainly like to see groups within NAS, you know, look at this and potentially develop an optimal frailty measure uh, to use. But right now um, at University of Colorado, our surgical group uses that the MF, MFI5 score, um, which is pretty easy to use. It's mostly comorbidities and then one question on whether or not the patient is um, partially or completely dependent um, for ADLs. And um, those with a higher frailty index do tend to have an even more complicated post-operative course. Um, basically, my recommendation would be if you're working with surgeons or you know in a in a surgical group, you at least just need to find a frailty measure to start using um, and and go from there because you at least want to be talking about it and collecting some data and and having a discussion. And hopefully, over time, we'll see the kind of optimal frailty measure for, for complex spine surgery kind of come to the forefront. It's fantastic. Yeah, I think um, hopefully they can develop more tools. And uh, I wish I knew when the next uh, grant proposal was for the NAS, um, you know, research sector, because I'm sure they, uh, they have some good ideas now from what you just mentioned. So hopefully, you know, there's a, there's a field if people want to, you know, go do some research, looking for a research project, they can definitely find something there. Um, I kind of want to now tie into, you know, your practice. Um, you mentioned you're a non-operative physician, um, people that are operative physicians or surgeons, um, as well as non-operative physicians like yourself, primary care, rheumatology, neurology, all see patients, um, you know, with this disease. Sometimes it depends on, you know, their referral source who is going to see the patient first. And I know some of my co-residents have done research in that field. Um, can you talk about, um, and, and with this answer, you can certainly go in many directions, but what would you say is the, the difference in approachment from a surgeon's uh, perspective um, versus from someone in your space, in the non-operative space? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, Honestly, I think the key ingredient here is, I mean, we're talking about a complex patient population. And so um, I honestly think the most important part, whether you're surgical or non-surgical is, is really identifying a, a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary care team. Um, it's a tough diagnosis to try to manage on your own. Um, so at our institution, um, our spine surgeons have been really working on an ever expanding complex spine pathway um, which I've now been a part of for the last year. And it really includes inputs um, potentially from PM&R, uh, psychology, uh, palliative care, um, endocrinology for bone health, uh, 
radiology, even weight management in some cases. Um, and then this is, you know, there's also a significant um, component of, of anesthesiology kind of pre-procedure um, services that um, really looks at a lot of the medical comorbidities. Um, and then finally, there's a, a, a deformity conference among surgeons um, that includes both neurosurgery and orthopedic spine surgeons. And so I think it's important to understand that even with all of these different experts chiming in, um, this is still a hard diagnosis and it's still, you know, uh, not an easy treatment course. And so one major challenge is when patients are too frail for surgery, yet we have no good non-operative treatment options and no good way to optimize them further for surgery. Um, and so I think in these cases, you really, the gap in care is potentially, um, you know, more palliative or, or psychology services. Um, and I think what we've seen locally, and I'm assuming it's, it's similar across the country is because of funding and resource limitations, there's just feels like there's not enough palliative care options, not enough, not enough psychology options, um, out there. Um, for diseases like this. Um, you know, I, I feel like in some respects, the impact on quality of life um, is really similar to, um, you know, somebody who's, you know, awaiting a transplant or maybe battling a cancer. Um, but it's really tough to get them um, kind of good, consistent, you know, psychological or, or palliative care. Um, to kind of just adapt or or kind of change their their way of thinking around um, living with this um, problem. And so what happens that often leaves the surgeon either performing a high risk surgery um, or needing to continually say no to a patient who may feel that their current condition is just simply not compatible with any life that they'd like to live. And so it makes it kind of tricky. Um, so even even with all of these different players, you know, within this kind of complex spine pathway, there's still unfortunately some gaps um, that that we haven't you know fully addressed yet. Yeah, no, um, you know, as I say, it takes a whole village, and it's great to see that you know at CU where you are that they do have these uh, these pathways. Looks like the, the disciplinary care there is quite strong. Um, I, I can certainly speak from Penn perspective. We certainly do as well. So it's great, um, and it's great that they recognize PM&R doctors. I know in some places um, they don't know what PM&R is still, um, and this is the, the doctors, by the way, not the patients. So it's great to great to see that. Um, now, um, and I kind of just wanted to expand more on you giving us an example. Uh, from a patient that you feel would benefit from your, your typical patient you see in the clinic that you feel would benefit from non-operative care, you know, versus someone that you would feel that would need a possible intervention. Sure. Yeah. I think that's a really good question. Um, so this will too be an oversimplification. Um, even with um, trying to simplify it, there's kind of multiple layers to this. So uh, firstly, regardless of the type of deformity, as a spine physiatrist, I'd like to see patients that do actually want non-operative care and have some functional goals. Um, so I can usually set up a reasonable pain management and rehab program that that, that patient population is, is happy with and comfortable with. Now, based on the research that's outlined in the paper, I can actually probably have the most impact as a non-operative provider 
with patients who do have less severe deformities. And so, you know, a, a Cobb angle of less than 30, less severe sagittal plane imbalances, um, you know, more mild disability, like an Oswestry score, you know, under 30 and less severe frailty. Um, in more severe patients, um, I'm certainly willing to work with them over the course of, of a year or so of, excuse me, work with them over the course of a year or so. Um, but if I'm not seeing improvement, I will probably recommend a surgical consult. Um, and if these folks have really a significant sagittal imbalance or at least moderate level of, of frailty, I'll probably have surgery get involved earlier, even if I'm still going to try to you know, optimize them non-operatively over the course of a year or two, just because the the data doesn't indicate that I'm probably going to make, you know, too, too big of an impact um, for those patients. Um, in most cases, waiting for surgery over a couple of years probably doesn't have a significant negative impact on surgical outcomes. Um, the exception may be uh, a paper that I referenced um, in our article of the moderately frail patient with moderate to severe disability, um, actually holding them out from surgery, you know, at least three years or more um, may actually lead to a greater level of frailty, um, you know, as opposed to, to going in and in, in intervening within those first couple of years. Great, uh, thank you so much for, you know, expanding on that. Um, I think it was wonderful how you kind of took Whenever you see a patient, you always think about their functional goals, you know, what they can do, um, and obviously taking into account imaging and all those other things. Um, so thank you for kind of going through that. Um, so far, you know, I think we've covered obviously a vast range of things, um, both in and outside the article, kind of looking forward to the disease um, progression over the course of time. Um, you, when you, you know, set out to, to write this paper and you got, got, got accepted for publication, all that, what, what are sort of your concluding thoughts? What, what do you hope that this paper will, you know, lead down to? And, and how do you feel like this disease will kind of go forward in terms of the management options in the patient population? Yeah, well, I think whether we like it or not, spine deformity is going to occupy an increasing amount of physician and clinic resources for many years to come. And I think we do need to start preparing ourselves for that. And so to me, this looks like taking a close look at your institution and community um, see what resources are available and, and who can help. Um, this also means finding some screening measures and outcome measures to follow um, so that you can you know, improve your care and outcomes over time. This also means trying to sort out what is high and low value non-operative care. Um, and so you know, we don't want to just apply the same treatments to every patient and, um, and expect, it to, expect it to work. And so working hard to kind of subgrouping where, where we can have an impact and where not, I think is important. And then finding an outlet for those patients who are simply too sick or too frail to have this type of surgery, but also probably not great candidates for, for our traditional non-operative care, you know, still continues to be a gap that needs to be filled. And so I think NAS has done some really nice symposia on deformity care, including multidisciplinary deformity care at previous meetings. And I'm certainly looking forward to more of that. Um, and then uh, lastly, just before we run out of time, I wanted to make sure that I got a chance to thank my co-authors. Um, so Christina Barber and Lindsay Burke um, from our um, PM&R department. But I also wanted to give a shout out to some of my surgical colleagues at University of Colorado. So especially Dr. David O. Young, 
um, who's taught me a lot about quality metrics and surgical decision-making and deformity surgeries. Um, and then as, as well, uh, you know, Dr. Peter Lennerson and Dr. Michael Finn, who just always seem to, to do right by their patient and don't seem to shy away from, you know, really difficult, difficult questions and, you know, difficult patient conversations and, um, and, uh, certainly appreciate their work and certainly appreciate you too. Um, thanks for having me here today. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's our pleasure, uh, Dr. Friedrich. Congratulations on the article and thank you so much for your time. Um, it's always fun and exciting uh, to see articles like this and the impact they make. So um, I'll definitely, anytime I see scoliosis or ADS, I'll definitely be thinking of you and thinking of all the, the great doctors that are doing wonderful work out there. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time.